because I've been blessed, you know, bilingual America, we started our first year, basically nothing. And we doubled in size every year for nine years. And, you know, I've had the honor of speaking for presidents. I've had the honor of consulting for some of the highest level people in the world. And it just started out as nothing, <laughs> you know, I had no idea whatever become what it became. If you're listening to this podcast, you are a Latino that is motivated to learn knowledge and strategies to help you thrive. During these difficult times, knowing how to thrive will give you the cutting edge to succeed where others fail. And now, Executive Coach Victor Escalante. Today's program, we have uh, Ricardo Gonzalez, who is going to be talking about his personal journey in America as well as tips that you can begin to implement right away. Ricardo Gonzalez is an author. He is the founder and CEO of Bilingual America. He's the author of Six Stages of Cultural Mastery, The Six Stages of Cultural Sales, The Cultural Transformation Manifesto, and The 12 Hidden Truths to Learning Spanish. He's a trusted consultant and speaker and cultural communications expert. So, Ricardo, welcome to our show. Thank you, Victor. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. It's an honor. So I've been looking forward to this. So thank you for having me on. Ricardo, tell us a little bit about your, your background. Wow. So going way back, my, my father is Puerto Rican, uh, one of 27 children. My mother was an orphan from the state of Kentucky. <laughs> so I joke with people and literally tell them I'm a Puerto Rican hillbilly, right? <laughs> so I grew up, in fact, that's the title of a new book I have coming out in the fall. <laughs> it's on, uh, it's called Puerto Rican Hillbillies and the subtitle is A Deep and Sometimes Disturbing Journey into the Bicultural Soul. But I grew up in a home that was very Puerto Rican. And also when I was very young, we lived in Puerto Rico. So I, I had a very true bicultural experience and my mother spoke Spanish very well as well. But the home was very dysfunctional culturally. They, there were a lot of arguments, a lot of fighting. And as I look back, most of it was cultural in nature, which kind of drives what I do today, Victor, which is really working with people in cultural transformation and how to get people who are very different, very diverse from one another to, to learn to kind of connect and create and collaborate together. And so that's what I've been doing all these years with Bilingual America, whether it's through language, whether it's through cultural training, whether it's through, we do leadership training for Latinos on how to become much better leaders in the American enterprise. So we do a gamut of things through Bilingual America, but they're all driven by that one core mission and desire. And that is to bring people together who are different from one another. Ricardo, the word culture, we know what it means, but for the average listener, just give us a brief definition of how you would define culture. Yeah, so in fact, most people don't know what it means. And, and we have data actually on this that we do with high-level executives and large organizations. And you can sit down, you know, six C-level peers in, in a room and ask them to define their culture individually on a piece of paper, and you're going to get six different answers. And, and so people are not clear on this, but culture is the aggregate of five different elements. So there are five things that come together for a group of people that actually create and, and you can define as culture. The first one is, is beliefs. Every culture 
has a set of beliefs in common. Uh, the second one are norms, and those are the, uh, excuse me, the second one are values, and those are the things that are important within the culture, and they usually just kind of spin off of our beliefs. So we have beliefs, and then we have values, and then norms. Norms are the expectations within the culture. So again, it kind of goes from beliefs that they spawn off our values, and those spawn off what we expect of one another within the culture, and, and those are called the norms. And then you have language, which may be the actual language, por ejemplo, español, English, French, you know, Russian, German could be that kind of language, but it could also be just the way we speak with one another. You know, do we speak in a harsh way? Do we speak respectfully? You know, what's our tone with one another? Do we listen well? Those are all elements of culture. Are we direct? Are we indirect? Or, you know, all of those things are become elements of culture. There, there are people and there are cultures, for example, in negotiations where you have people who are who are very direct in their communications and they're what's called an implicit communicator, right? Uh, or excuse me, an explicit communicator. And then there are people who are not so direct. They kind of go around things and they are called implicit communicators. And so, you know, is our language explicit? Is it implicit? You know, and then the, the fifth thing about every culture is the symbols. You know, what are the visual symbols of the cultures? And those can be things like in a company, it can be a logo on a football team. It can be, you know, the uniform, but it can also be within a culture. And I think this is really fascinating. It can be the food. It can be the music. It can be, you know, the flags. Those are all visuals within the culture. Those are all symbols of the culture. So you have, again, beliefs, values, norms, symbols, uh, language. Those are the five elements of every culture. If it, Just to define it, to answer your question. Sure. Ricardo, talk about uh, in your consulting and training work uh, with big corporations, mm -hmm. what are some of those norms that often lead to conflict uh, within a company? Because many of our listeners are either first generation Latinos or they are natives of other countries right. that have assimilated into America. And sometimes they really don't understand how the norms are important and being able to be perceived as someone that uh, is trustworthy, someone that is going to be a team player, someone that is material for leadership. Talk about those norms. You, you know, the, the leadership model typically in Latin America is different than the leadership model in the, in the United States. The, the leadership model in the United States is, a, is, is accepted as a model of service. And so leaders are expected to be people who will mentor, coach, and build up other people. Most of Latin America is still very hierarchical and leadership is more about just getting things done. Uh, probably the best way to, you know, in the United States right now, Victor, there's a, there's a big movement towards, you know, inclusion, for example, being a leader who is inclusive or a leader who's empowering, uh, a leader who creates a, a sense of belonging. You know, those are not movements that are strong in Latin America right now, or that most of our people have experienced. And it's something that's evolving in the United States. It didn't used to be that way. Uh, it's something that is is really a result of, of a lot of, of movement. It's a result of a lot of work in, in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's the result of certainly some voices out there as it relates to social justice. There's a lot of stuff going on, right? A lot of moving pieces culturally in the United States. And, and so that's kind of caught wind. But the actual diversity, equity, inclusion movement in the United States has been going maybe 20, 30 years. You know, it's not that old. And so what I would say is that on a top level, right, probably the most best way, the best way to understand 
kind of top level differences between cultures is to view it from a standpoint of what we call high and low context cultures. Okay. So Latin America is a high context culture, casi por todo lado. Okay. Mainstream American culture is low context, especially mainstream business leaders are, are typically very low context. So if, if we can define the difference between a high context culture and a low context culture, then I think kind of your listeners can kind of go, okay, let me, let me get that. And that's, that's a big difference between what I've experienced in Latin America and what I've experienced in, in the United States or what I'm experiencing out in the macro culture, right? So what's a high context culture? What's a low context culture? A high context culture is a culture where number one, relationships are more important than results. Okay. That's high context. Okay. In, in a low context culture, results are more important than the relationship. Okay. So you can start to kind of map this out. I'll give you three things on each side. Okay. So number one, in a high context culture, relationships are more important than the results. In a low context culture, the results are more important than the relationships. Okay. Uh, second thing, in a high context culture, uh, people value tradition over change. So if you go to Latin America, and I actually live in Latin America, so I, I can speak to this, and I've traveled in many countries, tradition is valued. You know, even the way we treat our elders in Latin America, you know, the way geriatrics are, are handled in Latin America are very different. You know, you don't have all of all the old people in, in convalescent homes, right? Children take care of them. So this, this high context tradition is valued over change is seen throughout all of Latin America. It's even in our, you know, in the, in the United States, in low context, you know, change is valued over tradition. Great example of this is just the, the in the United States, you know, over the last couple of years, just taking down certain monuments and certain statues. Well, those are part of tradition, but change is more important than tradition. That so let's bring happened. it down to the yeah, practical. Let's yeah. say that you have a first-generation uh, child of immigrant uh, parents who yeah. is starting out in corporate America. Uh, yeah. They have either their bachelor's degree in business or their master's yeah. degree. Uh, what should they be focusing on in order to accelerate their uh, career path? Well... That that's not just a cultural question. That's a that's a professional question, right? But considering it through the lens of of being a an immigrant uh, or descendant of immigrants, being bicultural, I think people respond to us the way we project ourselves. So if I come into an organization and I and I project myself as a person who doesn't belong there or who's different then that may be how I end up being treated. So I think the first thing that I would say to anyone is, you know, if you're there, you belong there. You earned it, right? And act like it. Don't, don't come in with the idea that people are going to mistreat me because I'm, a, I'm an immigrant's child or because I look different than, than some of the other people. Come in with the idea that I'm going to come in and contribute and be part of this. And I belong here. This is... This is my profession. So that's think, where the belief system comes in, in that you got to have the mindset that uh, you belong there, that absolutely. you are part of the tribe, the company, 
and you're going to put forth uh, your contribution to the company and just view it as that. It's like, don't uh, come in with uh, an inferiority complex of being different. Absolutely. You know, I look at my father. My dad um, was one of 27 children from the same father. Okay. So two different women, but 27 children from the same father. And he was in the middle and he moved to the United States. So I was that, you know, that, that, that first generation. Right. And he moved to the States when he was 16, got involved in the gangs of Chicago. Um, very much looks like if you picture Pablo Escobar in his heyday, right. I have a picture of my dad that, I mean, he could almost be his twin. <laughs> okay. So that, he looked that stereotypical Latino man, right? And I've talked with my dad about this. And, and my dad retired when he was 45. He, he was very successful in the restaurant business uh, once he got out of trouble. And, and, and I asked my dad about that. I said, I said, did you ever feel like people discriminated against you? Or, and he was in Northern Indiana. And Victor, we were the only Latino family there. Yeah, right? you had a monopoly at that time. We did. did I mean, my dad a... goes around this little town in northern Indiana with La Cucaracha as an air horn on his truck, right? Yeah. So he wasn't hiding who he was. And I asked my dad, did you ever feel, and he said, never. And this was 70s, you know? And I said, why not? He said, because I always acted like I should be there. I never came in thinking that I was an, an outlier, that I was going to be treated or mis, be mistreated. He said, I always acted like I would act with any of them, like I would want them to act with me. And I think there's a lot there, right? And I'm not saying, and I would no, never- I concur. I totally concur because uh, whatever you project out is what you end up uh, creating. And the, at the end of the day is you acting out out of a belief system that you are just as good that you belong there, that you are there to do a job and you focus on that, then you end up uh, being congruent in that what you think, what you say, what you feel and what you do is all in alignment. As a man thinks or as a woman thinks in his or her heart. So sure. is, and there's a lot to be said for this because I've met a lot of people, a lot of Hispanics or Latinos. And now some people are saying Latinx, although it's not a word that's generally accepted but whatever your listenership is kind of buying into these days, culturally, a lot of people come into an, an, an environment kind of thinking and already believing that they're going to be mistreated, that people are against them. And if you come into an environment with that mindset, the chances that you are going to actually even create that to happen exponentially go up. Now you're an expert in neuro-linguistic programming. So you know, this is more your field than mine, right? But from a cultural standpoint, we don't have to feel fear because we're going into an environment that is not native to our own. It's an opportunity, must be, right? It's an opportunity for us to highlight some of the wonderful things about our own cultures and bring value to that organization. So I, I think that, you know, it's an important point I'm never going to say that some people are not discriminated against because I would never say that, that, you know, that exists. But in the great majority of organizations in the United States, 
you know, there's a strong movement towards equity. There's a strong movement towards inclusion, but we also have to do our part to be able to fit in as well. And, and so that's, that's kind of a mutual expression of relationship, I think, that has to take place. But I would never enter into an environment, and, and I've never done it in my teaching. Now, you know, being transparent, and this is on audio, I'm, I'm fairly light complexion. And, and so some people would say, well, you're white, so you had that privilege. Well, perhaps. Also, I speak very, very good English, but I also speak Spanish equally as well. And, and so, and I live in Latin America, and my wife is Puerto Rican, and my life is... 100% Latino. I, you know, my, my American dealings are mostly business, not my personal life. But I think the point is really, really important, Victor, that when people come into a new environment, come in with confidence, come in believing that you belong there, come in believing that you bring value to the organization. Don't come in with a mindset that these people are going to be against me because I'm Latino for some reason. Sure. Okay. Uh, Ricardo, talk about uh, some of your writings. Uh, you, a, you are a proficient author. And talk about uh, what uh, motivated you to, to write the books that you have. And maybe <laughs> share with us uh, some of the tips of cultural mastery or cultural sales uh, that you've been able to teach uh, others. Since, since I can remember, you know, my parents thought I was crazy when I was a kid because when I learned to write in cursive as a child. Of course, back in those days, they, they taught you cursive, right? Um, so, but when I learned to write in cursive, I would walk around the, the living room or in the house and with my finger, just write. And my, my parents would tell me, you know, do it local, you know, but I would just write. And, and I think, honestly, I think God made me a writer and I love to write. And it's just, it's just something that flows from me when I got my first typewriter I just, I would stay hours on this typewriter. You know, I have a son who's a professional musician and he would stay hours on his guitar. Well, I would stay hours on my typewriter. I just loved it. I mean, and I was a kid, right? Um, and then I would type in my sleep at night with my fingers and I would just, you know, so I think that there is part of that, Victor, that, you know. It's part of your DNA. It's part of my DNA, my ADN, you know, it's just part of who I am. And you know, when I started Bilingual America, we were really strong in courses. So we really, I would write courses and I wasn't writing books. And, and I did that for years and we were very successful doing so. And then, I don't know, I think about 10 years ago, I decided, no, I, I actually want to write books. And so I wrote my first book, which was really, it was, it was different than the culture because it was, it's called The 12 Hidden Truths to Learning Spanish. And that book um, was so powerful and getting people to see what it takes to learn Spanish as an adult. And very frankly, it drove the, uh, the sales for our Spanish training course because the principles that I teach in that book are exactly what we do in our Spanish training. <laughs> and so it's kind of, it was a very powerful combination and, and was a really, really good thing for our business to write that first book. And then I started thinking, then I, then I, uh, for about four years, because it, Writing is one thing. Knowing how to write is another. Okay. Because the, the desire and the passion to write, I had. What I didn't have was the understanding of how to write a book and how to structure a book and the people I needed in my life to make that happen. And that's what I learned after several years. I knew how to do courses and online courses and hard copy courses. I mean, I remember the first course we had was with cassette tapes and, 
and three ring binders that were gold embossed and padded. You know, I mean, they were really cool. I mean, they were really nice looking. We sold a lot of courses and they were great courses. My first course was called Expresate and it was an English course for uh, Latinos uh, learning to, to, to speak English, right? <laughs> and so, but now I'm on a track to write two books a year. That's my goal for the next five years. And this year, as I just, a published author, I can tell you yeah. that uh, that's a major undertaking, and and just learning to uh, publish a book uh, is is quite a long learning curve to understand all the elements uh, that need to be in place to have a good good book and to have a good seller. Uh, Ricardo, uh, talk to us about uh, Líderes Exitosos. Uh, tell us what you teach in that book or in that course and, and share with us some of that gold nuggets that you present in there. So Líderes Exitosos is a six hour course on how to be a leader in the American enterprise. It uh, has six sections that are all about an hour in length. And of course there are worksheets with this and then certification exam and so on and so forth. Uh, first section is character and ethics. Leadership is all about who we are not who we're leading. And so I, I spent a good deal of time talking with people about, you know, who am I as a person? What's my character? And what are my ethics as a leader? If I don't get that foundation correct, my leadership will always be about me. It will always be about me trying to get other people to do the things I want them to do it will not be about me influencing and building up other people to do the things they want to do. And so for me, leadership is really simple. The purpose of leadership is to create an environment or culture where other people can thrive. And so we, we, we go deep into what should be the character and the ethics of a highly successful leader, right? The second thing we do in that course is on communications. And there are three types of communication, okay, that, that we work with in this course. The first type is our is our self-talk. All right. And you know this, Victor, right? If if I am not communicating properly with myself, if I am lying to myself, if I am not encouraging myself, if I am not building up myself properly, if I am not affirming who I am as a human being correctly. I will never be in the position to help other people achieve their greatness. And so the first thing we do under communications is a section on, on the way we communicate with ourselves. And I think that's a very, very important thing. And I don't think it's talked about enough in leadership development, but I know you have expertise in that field, so I won't go too Yeah, deep. that's the unconscious programming that's running in the background of any unresolved conflicts that you may have within yourself or different parts that are in conflict because you carry conflicts. They were you were exposed to as a child in your environment that you need to resolve that and you need to have the clarity of thought in order to be able to convey that to the people that you lead. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, I can't lead people to where I've never been. Correct. It's just impossible. And so the first section of the communications piece is, is the way we communicate with ourselves. The second section is the way we communicate one on one with other people which is a huge part of leadership. And then the third section of communication is the way we communicate with people in groups or in, in, in public forum, right? 
And if we can address our communications in those three stages, how I communicate with myself, how I communicate with other people privately, and how I communicate with other people in public, now I'm really uh, getting the whole spectrum of communications here as it relates to you know, just the way we're talking. Now, there are multiple ways to communicate these days, right? It's not just the, the verbal word. We can communicate through writing. We can communicate as well now on social media. So there are multiple outlets for communication and to build that, that platform. But these are essential teachings, I, I believe, to be able to, to communicate at the highest levels. And, you know, my degree is in communications and our company is, is the subtitle on the company Bilingual America is cultural communication. So this is an area that, that I've studied deeply. This is an area that we, we, as leaders, you know, our number one goal is communication. We have to get our communications correct. So that's the second. Uh, so first is character and ethics. And then the second one is, is communications. And then the third one is organizational skill. Because you can have the greatest ideas in the world, right? But if you can't execute them, <laughs> if you can't organize them, if you can't make things cohesive and 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 develop a process, you have a problem, <laughs> right? And um, that's basic I was uh, project management 101. <laughs> it's like you got to be able absolutely. To, but it's a very to, <laughs> to break something complex into manageable steps. I was fortunate, America. And this was in 1992. So we have 30 years now of history. And, you know, we went from this little itty, itty bitty company that I started in Atlanta, Georgia, to really an international company with clients all over the world. And, and clients like Coca-Cola and Georgia Pacific and Kimberly Clark and Randstad, you know, some of the largest companies in the, in the world, MetLife, uh, you know, multiple very large associations like National Roofing Contractors Association, National Association of Home Builders. Um, most amazing thing I think I ever saw in a consulting gig was standing on a catwalk at Smithfield Foods and literally looking over, I think, up around 5,000 and I'm not being stereotypical, I'm just being factual Mexicans and Central Americans who were hired by this company to, to um, slaughter pigs and, and process ham and bacon and all this stuff. Uh, you know, so I've seen a lot, right? And what we, what we do know is if you can't organize, if you can't organize your work, your thoughts, your presentations, you're not going to be an effective leader. And so this is a this is a critical skill we teach in in, in Lideres Exitosos. And then the next skill we teach is is, is management skill. And that is the, the the development of a team and the management of a team and and the leveraging of a team and the empowerment of a team. Because if as leaders I'm not empowering other leaders to lead those teams, then I'm just going to get inundated. I think one of the mistakes that a lot of um, inexperienced leaders make, Victor is they want to hold on so tight, especially new business owners, right? They want to hold on so tight to everything that they don't empower other people. They don't, they're not good delegators and they don't leverage human capital properly. And, and so they get stuck, right? And the business sticks with them. So to, to be an effective leader, you have to be able to build teams. You have to be able to empower people to, to do the, what they're asked to do. In my company, for example, I don't even, I don't even look at calendars. I don't want to know what they're doing when I just want, you know, they're adults, they're trained. Um, <laughs> you know, 
Uh, I'm not a babysitter. I, th- I hate micromanaging. So the way to get out of micromanaging is to be a really good, effective organizer and leader and also a person who knows how to manage and build a team properly. So that's the fourth thing in Lideres Exitosos. That, that is how do, we, how do we build a team and how do we, how do we leverage the, the, uh, the human capital properly? The fifth thing is negotiation, which is a section I love. Um, and that is how do we get to the win-win-win, right? Before Stephen we get Covey. before we go there, Ricardo, yep. let's back up because I also have done a lot of uh, team processes, uh, training, okay. and building. Right. And I want you to talk about your experience in building teams. What are some of the biggest obstacles uh, that you've been able to see, and how some of our listeners may not understand how unconsciously. They are not very team oriented, especially coming from broken homes or from an environment that was not conducive uh, towards a homogeneous uh, group. So talk about that. Well, wow, there's so many things here. I mean, number one, you have to have a humble spirit that you don't care who gets the credit. That, that I think is number one for a leader, that your goal is to empower an environment and empower people. and if somebody else gets the credit as a leader, you're not only do you want that, you're happy with it. Right. I think that that's, that's, that's critical. Um, there's so many things here. I'm trying to think through where I want to go here with this. I think the second thing, Victor on building the team is, is the recruitment aspect of it. Right. Seeing it as so many people put an ad out on a newspaper, right. They're looking for workers or they're, they're looking for people or they're trying to fill a spot, right? So it's either an ad somewhere or maybe it's on a job posting board or something. And and they take the first or second person who comes along because they're in a position where they have to fill a spot. And I think that's a huge mistake. You you actually want to go out and recruit the people you want who have the skill set and the mindset that you need on your team, okay? So I think leaders need to be much more proactive than, than reactive as it relates to team building. You know, if you look at the best of the best, I know you're in Houston there. So, and and I'm a college football fan, but you're kind of in a hotbed of that in Texas there, <laughs> right? The best of the best are the best recruiters. And so talent acquisition, I think, is an important skill for leaders to develop if you're going to build a really strong team. And, and that's a skill set in and of itself. I have a great friend who was a client who was the head of talent acquisition for all of Coca-Cola Western Hemisphere. And I spent five different trips with him in Latin America because he was placed over Latin America and never really worked in Latin America. So my my responsibility, my job with him was to teach him the Latin American culture. And at the same time, over time, we became very, very good friends. He's now the chief global talent acquisition director for Zurich, which is the Zurich Financial Group, right, which is which is huge and, and hugely important. You know, we had long conversations about talent acquisition and and. The reality is, is that if you're building a team, you have to recruit your team. You don't want to sit back and just put ads out or feelers out and let people come to you. You want to be the recruiter. I said that. So I think that that's another very important thing that that people need to keep in mind that as the leader, I can recruit, in fact, the people who. So you have to be really clear on what the mindset and skill set you are seeking. Right. And then you go out and you find that person that fits you, fits the culture that you want to build. 
and don't sit back and just kind of let it happen. So I think that's another thing. And then one more thing I'll just put on this is that people talk a lot about collaboration. Okay. And collaboration is critical in teams, the ability to work together. But this also takes us back to culture. If you have people in your organization who are not culturally endeared to one another, in other words, they don't love each other, you know, people who are different in the organization and they're kind of all pulling for their agendas and for their own ego, you'll have very, very poor collaboration within a team. Cultural endearment is the sixth principle of cultural mastery. And it's critical if you ever want to get to the highest levels of collaboration. And the reason is, is because only people who love each other will actually sacrifice for each other. Only people who love each other will actually put aside their own personal agendas for the good of the team. And if you're going to have a high-performing team, a team that's highly collaborative and highly creative, you need to have people who are endeared to one another or it's going to suffer. So I don't, does that make sense, Victor, sure, where sure. I'm going with that? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so... Uh, let's bring it down even to a more granular level. Let's say that uh, somebody is listening to us and they are a middle manager managing a team and there's bad blood between the, uh, the team members. How can you develop some, uh, some love between them? W what's your experience? Take them through cultural mastery. <laughs> okay. It's a skill. Sure. And it's a mindset. Okay. So let, let's talk about this. What, what is cultural mindset and what is cultural skill set? Cultural mindset is how we view one another, okay? And that's going to address the things like bias and stereotype and prejudice and all of those things, okay? Skill set is how we treat one another. And both have to be in proper balance if I'm going to get to what we call cultural endearment. So in skill set, We talk about how do we connect with one another? How do we create with one another? And how do we collaborate with one another? Okay. Now we can give seminars until we die, but that's not going to endear people. So what cultural mastery does is starts them off right at stage one, which is education and takes them through a very, very meaningful. And I would say transformative process um, that just changes the way people view and treat one another. We have to understand that our divisions are almost always cultural in nature because our divisions are divisions on beliefs, values, norms, symbols, and language. Every war in history has been caused by cultural conflict, okay? Because every war in history has been a war over beliefs, values, symbols, language, and norms. So if we have a, a warring faction within a company, it's the same thing. We just have these different cultures that war with one another, these people from different cultures that, you know, that are pulling against each other. And so we have to step back and we have to take people through a process where we can transform their mindset and their skill set. And once that's done, what you'll find is that people become incredibly creative together and people become very, very collaborative together. And also, you know, not to go too deep into this, that the only leaders who actually are inclusive uh, are in stage four of cultural mastery, which is excitement. And the only leaders who are just are in stage five, which is which is empowerment. So there's a lot there. It's a very deep process and it's a very meaningful process. And, and so I would just suggest that if, I, if I'm a middle manager and I'm having teams that are 
just not clicking. I seriously, I'll give you an example. We had a we had a charter school up in northern Indiana that was really struggling with enrollment and they were really struggling amongst their teachers to kind of pull things together. And we took the entire staff, including the principal of the school, through cultural mastery. And from one year to the next, they had a 40% increase in enrollment at that school. And the principal said it was 100% due to cultural mastery because it transformed the relationships amongst the teachers. And it also transformed the staff relationships with the community. And it just opened up their worlds. So I believe in that process. I think it's incredibly important. I think every leader in the country needs cultural mastery. And, and I'm not being superfluous or, or, or speaking beyond what I actually believe. I actually believe it. It's that transformative. We've had college presidents go through this. We've had chief human resources go through this. We've had I, I had a lady who's the global supplier diversity for a very large company, African-American woman. She said, this changed my life. So it doesn't matter color or race or ethnicity. It, it is transformative because it transforms the way we manage our relationships. And if you're a leader, that's job one. It's the relationships and it's building the relationships with the team. So, right. So it's going from the micro to the macro to the universal to where all three domains are in agreement. It's like you're in rapport with all three domains. Well, in, in, you know, in, in life, we're in relationship, number one, to ourselves, right? Correct. <laughs> we're in relationship to other people. And then when we're in relationship with other people, that group of people is relationship is in relationship to the greater community, correct? And, and so if, if at the core, I'm not right, right? Then my next group of people isn't going to be right. And then the community is not going to be right. <laughs> so the only way, you know, I always say, that the cultural health and skill of an organization is fully dependent on the cultural health and skill of the team members within that organization. The parts make the whole. Very well put. Okay, Ricardo, let's move on to negotiation. <laughs> Líderes exitosos. Yes. Um, okay, well, I'll give one principle on negotiation. If you're not willing to negotiate on the really small stuff, don't ever expect to negotiate large deals. My, my kids used to rag on me because we'd be in a restaurant and maybe something came with a toothpick out of place or something. And I would, I would in front of my children, right? I would negotiate, you know, maybe a free dessert or something like that. And it wasn't to get the free dessert. It was just to keep sharp, right? To negotiate little things that you knew you had. You, you say, que uno tiene la razón, yeah. but it's not something that you would normally even think about, right? And it's not that you're looking... You That's know, but, negotiating from a position of strength, knowing absolutely knowing but the dynamics and how you have leverage over a situation to be able to get what you want. But if you don't do that on really small stuff that seeming significant, if you don't take those opportunities to practice, then then what are you going to do when you get in a boardroom of C-suite leaders, right, of a company like Coca-Cola? <laughs> you are going to bomb. Right. So the first thing I encourage people to do in negotiation is practice on the small stuff. <laughs> right. OK. The second thing I think about negotiation is, is, is attitude. I am not there to win in a negotiation. I am there for the win, win, win. I want I want to win. I want my partner to win or my, my client. And I want the people that we're serving together to win. And if the negotiation is not a win-win-win, I don't do it, okay? 
We all have to win in the process. If not, I'm just being selfish. And so too much negotiation that I have seen in some of our countries is all about me winning. And when when I'm going to win at any cost, then I tend to move into some ethical problems, right? Because I want to win at any cost. And that's when salespeople and that's when uh, leaders start saying things that are maybe just a little bit off, okay? But if I take the attitude of win, 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 that clears up any ethical and character issues that I might run into in my negotiations. So to me, that is very, very important, okay? Uh, I'll give you an example of where I felt there was a win, there was a win, and there was a lose, okay? And this was about a $500,000 deal with R.J. Reynolds. Okay, you with me? Sure. (laughs) So R.J. Reynolds comes to me and they want to teach Spanish, which of course Bilingual America offers, we believe the best Spanish training in the country for people who want to get professional level Spanish, right? And so they come to me and they say, we want you to train X number of people in the state of Florida. And I say, okay, explain it to me. And this was about a half a million dollar deal, Victor. And the deal was that they wanted to do this to teach convenience store owners Spanish. So, and here was their purpose. So they could sell more cigarettes. My mother died of cancer from smoking cigarettes. And so the win-win was there. I would make a good deal of money providing a service that my company provides. They would, RJ Reynolds would get what they wanted, Right. But the end result was not a win. And that was that Latinos would be sold more cigarettes and develop more health problems. So I turned the deal down. And that's an example of how win-win-win, not win-win, and certainly not just win, but that's an example of how win-win-win will guide your ethics. Now, I wouldn't judge someone else who took that deal. It was just too close and personal for me at that time. My mother had just died of cancer like three or four years before that. And it just didn't feel right to me. Does that make sense? What Absolutely. I'm saying as it relates to Absolutely. negotiation? Uh, in that uh, you, you have to have your core principles and values that you will draw a line. You will draw a line and say, no, I'm sorry. I, I, we cannot move forward with this with this deal, with this negotiation. And sometimes, uh, I don't know if the company came back to you for other trainings, but I've had situations where I said no, and the company respected that, and they brought me in for some other kind of training because they knew that I was firm about my integrity and my core values. Yeah. Uh, One more thing on negotiation, and I would say this, is some of it's attitudinal, but some of it's skill, some of it's proactive. And that is, do not look at the person you're negotiating with as an adversary. Look at them as a partner. And studies are clear on this. The more you know about your partner, the more commonality you can find with him or her, the more successful you will be with that person in negotiations. The greatest negotiators in the world spend most of their time getting to know their negotiation partners. So don't minimize the need to know people. I love this saying, you know, focus on the on the ROAR, right? Not the ROI. So ROI is return on investment, right? The ROAR is return on relationship. Focus on the return on relationship. The greatest negotiators in the world focus on the relationship. And so I think that that's really important as people approach negotiation to not look as they're at, at the person they're negotiating with 
as an adversary. Look at them as a partner and get to know them and do your homework. You'll find more points of commonality. And by the way, people buy from who they like. They don't buy from people they don't like. Even if you have the product or service they want, they still won't buy from you, <laughs> right? And, and so just kind of keep those things in mind as you're negotiating. I love the whole negotiation thing, Victor. I think it's a great study, but at least those are some top level things that I would encourage your listeners to keep in mind. Okay. Anything else that you can share with us on Líderes Exitosos? You know, we the end of that course, we take three leaders and just really kind of go into detail on their lives. <laughs> and one is Cesar Chavez, uh, the, the great Mexican-American civil rights leader uh, who, who really advocated for farm worker rights. Uh, one is uh, Madre Teresa, Mother Teresa, and the other one is Abraham Lincoln. People don't know this about Lincoln, but Lincoln was very good friends with Benito Juarez, who was at that time the president of Mexico. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Didn't you? Okay. No. And so there is a statue of Benito Juarez in, in Washington, D.C., and there is a statue of, of Abraham Lincoln in the Federal Square and Distrito Federal in La DF. But here's the thing. Lincoln was very opposed to the Mexican-American War. He was very opposed to the annexation of the land because of his friend, friendship with Juarez. If Lincoln had not been assassinated, most likely the America, the United States of America we know today would not exist, and Mexico would be much larger in size if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated. It's a fascinating study of history. <laughs> that is uh, very interesting. Yes, it is. It's fascinating. And so we use, we use uh, the lives of Abraham Lincoln, Mother Teresa, and Cesar Chavez as models for people in this course of just analyzing their leadership skill and what they were able to accomplish and how, because they all accomplished, obviously, incredible, incredible things. Share with so, us some of the uh, material or some of the quotes that stand out in your mind from all three leaders as, for, as it applies oh, to I, being a now leader. Now you're putting me on the spot. Yeah, I, just, know, I, <laughs> just from memory. Quotes or, are, I don't know if I can come up with just quotes, right? Or, or something that, share, that you I'll appreciate. Share principles. Okay, I'll go share for principles. it. Go for okay. it. So Cesar Chavez was a master organizer. And, and that was his greatest strength as a leader. He was not an orator. Um, he was a great organizer. And he was driven. And the other thing about Cesar Chavez was he was driven by internal passion. You know, he knew that world. He came out of that world. He felt the pain of the farm workers. And I think every great leader, really great leader, really does feel that pain of the people that they're leading and representing. And that's what makes them truly, truly compassionate and empathetic to those people. So Cesar Chavez had those qualities. Mother Teresa was a very different person. She, you know, obviously she wasn't originally from Calcutta. So she was a, she was an immigrant <laughs> to India and she adopted India as her, as her country. And, and I think that that's kind of interesting, but she was an incredible fundraiser. And great leaders have to be able to raise funds because it takes money to be able um, to, to, to fund the movement, right? And she was an incredible fundraiser. And her ability to, to bring that uh, movement together, I think, is fascinating. And Abraham Lincoln, you know, the thing about Lincoln, and I think this may encourage some of our listeners. The thing about Lincoln was he was self-taught. He taught himself how to read. 
He never went to law school. He taught himself law and actually passed the bar exam in Illinois. And he, you know, he was that emancipator. He, he was that person who looked out on the world and said, let's, let's create freedom. Now, the other thing about Lincoln, and this is just a fact of history, is that his main reason for the, the Civil War was not necessarily to emancipate the slaves. His main reason was to hold the Union together. So if you look at history, and, and just by his own admission, you know, he didn't want the Union to split. And it was the issue of slavery that was going to split the Union. And so his goal primarily was to keep it together, that he felt that there was too much value in the United States of America to lose half of it. Slavery was that tipping point issue that, that really drove that war. But if you look back on Lincoln's history before that as a leader, he was consistent in that position well before he became president. You know, and I think the other thing about Lincoln, Victor, is that, you know, he lost he lost his initial attempts into political office. And it, probably one of the most persistent people in history as a relate. And he wasn't a, you know, a person that you look at him, you go, here's this charismatic, uh, attractive man. That wasn't him. It was the strength of his mind and the strength of his character that built Lincoln as a leader. And I think that's encouraging to all of us because, you know, you don't necessarily have to be charismatic. You don't necessarily have to even be physically super attractive to be a great leader. You do need a great mind. You need a great purpose. You need a great mission and you need great levels of persistence. You cannot give up at first loss. And I think those are the lessons that we can take away from Lincoln. Absolutely. Which now the, the research confirms that the greatest indicator of a person's success is their ability to develop grit early in their life so that it carries them through life. Yes. The, the, you know, it's called the, the EQ, the emotional intelligence, right? Um, Correct. Howard Gardner uh, has a kind of a very famous uh, thing out there, the seven levels of intelligence or seven different types of intelligence, one of them being emotional intelligence. And he says, if you don't have emotional intelligence, you can't leverage any of the other six that you might happen to have. (laughs) Right. Correct. And, and so you, you call it grit. Some people might call it persistence. Some people might call it emotional intelligence. It doesn't matter. You have to have that ability to see it through when things get tough because they always will. All right. Ricardo, tell us about your upcoming book. What can you share with us? Uh, oh, my. Publication. <laughs> so on, give us some of that secret sauce. Yeah, I just gave I just came out with the six stages of cultural sales came out two weeks ago. In May, we're coming out with one that breaks the series of the six stages, but I think it's an important book at this time because right now there's just a lot of talk about belonging and belongship and in the corporate world. So I'm coming out with a book in May called To Belong or Not to Belong, a bit Shakespearean, I suppose, Sure, sure. right? The subtitle is Real Talk About Creating a Culture Where People Long to Be. Very excited about the book. The draft's done. Uh, we're working on some of the finer points. I, I have a developmental editor I work with uh, who also has her hand in this as well. But uh, to belong or not to belong. And and then the draft is completely done for Puerto Rican hillbillies. We plan to launch that on Hispa- Hispanic Heritage Month, um, September 15th of this year. So we have two more books coming out this year. And then I have no idea where 2022 will take us. But, you know, belonging is, is, a, is a really interesting subject in the research for that book and in the writing of that book. You know, 
how do you get people who've never felt like they belong to, to come into an organization and now all of a sudden they just love being there, right? I didn't know this, but you know how many people run away, from, teenagers run away from home annually in the United States? I have no idea. Why don't you share that with us? Yeah, it's it's uh, I, the, the number that I saw was 2.9 million. Wow. Which I, I have to verify that number, but that's out from a, a large association that works in this field. But even if it's a million people a year running, teenagers running away from home, that says to you at its deepest level, people don't even want to sometimes belong where they actually do belong, which is in their families. Wow. And, and so we have this, you know, this sense of, I think it's going to be a, a I, 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 I'm very excited about this book because it's very real. It's very transparent. It, it's not just a teaching book. It's a, it's a personal book. And so I'm very excited about it. And so I would just, you know, Victor, I, first of all, I appreciate you having me on. I, I love the work you do. I would just encourage your, your, your listeners. There, there are three things that it takes to develop a really, really healthy business. And if, if I could share those three things, I, I think it'd be helpful for your listeners. Please do. Okay. Because I've been blessed, you know, Bilingual America, we started our first year with basically nothing. And we doubled in size every year for nine years. And, you know, I've had the honor of speaking for presidents. I've had the honor of consulting for some of the highest level people in the world. And it just started out as nothing. <laughs> you know, I had no idea whatever become what it became. So I want to give these three things to your listeners and, and hopefully it'll help them. Number one, there are three things you must have to develop a healthy and thriving business. Number one, you must have passion. You must love what you do because if you don't, you won't get up to do it. You won't stay up till two in the morning doing it when you need to be up at two in the morning working on your business. You won't do the extra work if you don't have that love and passion for it. So that's number one. You must be passionate about what you do but that's not enough. Okay. Number two, you must be skilled at what you do. If you're passionate about it, but you're not skilled at it, you still won't make it. Okay. You may get some people riled up and thinking, but you won't develop a business. You must be skilled at it. So whatever professional skills you need, whether it's in communication, whether it's in leadership, whether it's in negotiations, whether it's in team building, whether it's in technology, whatever professional skills you need, you need to get them, okay? You must be skilled. And then the third thing that needs to happen is the market must need what you want to offer them. There has to be a need in the market for what you want to offer. If those three things come together, Victor, you have a real, real strong chance at a really healthy and growing business, okay? Passion, skill, and need. Make sure those three things come together. Ricardo, this has been a very enlightening uh, interview, and we need to have you back on the program to uh, cover your trajectory and to share with us uh, some more of your valuable insights and lessons. Love to do it. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Appreciate you. Un abrazo. Igualmente, hermano. Take care. Cuídate mucho. 